Hello and welcome to this week's very special edition of the Get Your Film Fix podcast. I'm Lee Carlo, joined by Chapin Hemingway and Jeremy Fiss, coming to you from Portland, Oregon, Ludlow, Vermont, and Salem, Massachusetts. We have something a little different today, as we'll be discussing three movies. I'm not sure if we've ever had a cast where we had three movies to discuss outside, of course, of the Fixies and director retrospectives. Um, But if you tuned in last week, you know that I challenged Chapin to watch Sergio Leone's 1966 masterpiece, The The Good, Bad, and the Ugly. Chapin challenged Jeremy to rewatch Alex Garland's Annihilation. And Jeremy challenged me to watch Sweet Smell of Success, starring Tony Curtis and Burt Lancaster. Uh, I had never seen that. Jeremy, of course, was a rewatch, and Chapin, I think, had long since forgotten uh, the, the last time he'd seen Good, Bad, and the Ugly and has had some opinions on it that I don't necessarily agree with. The whole point of this exercise was, of course, to introduce or reintroduce us to some movies that we have felt the other person has gotten wrong or may change their opinion on. And we're going to find out today whether or not that experiment worked. I'll start with you, Chapin. I've got just a couple quick questions for you, and then you can share your thoughts on Yeah, why don't you give a little intro into why you want it? Like, do you want to do that? Give a little... Yeah, yeah, I think so. Um, And then we'll just kind of go around, and we've all seen this movie, so it'll be easy enough for us to all chime in. Um, But Sergio Leone is a director most known for what is called the Spaghetti Westerns. Um, They're called that because they are an American genre set in the American West directed by an Italian filmmaker. Um, shot a lot of times, Italy. Shot in Italy, a lot of times starring Italian Actually, mostly actors. in Spain, I found out in my research. Oh, that's interesting. I didn't yeah. know that. Um, the, they don't have a, lot a of desert times, like that in Italy. Outside of your main actors, like Clint Eastwood um, in this particular case and some of his other movies, actors like Charles Bronson, uh, a lot of Italian actors who only spoke Italian during production. Um, He hires uh, Italian cinematographers, Italian composers. Uh, The writer for one of the writers for uh, Good, Bad, and the Ugly is Luciano Vincenzoni. I think that's an Italian. No, it's it's Vincenzoni. Vincenzoni. Also, you figured that out in your research? Yeah. Um, Now... I have always really admired these films. Jeremy, I think you feel the same way. Uh, I do. And what I admire most about these movies is not the story or the screenplays, although I think a lot of times they are very good. It's not the acting, although this time around watching what I could of Good, Bad, and the Ugly, I actually thought there was some impressive acting in them. It's the direction of Sergio Leone, uh, and combined with that, all the tools that he uses. Uh, his camera, his use of sound, his use of music, the way that he's able to draw out scenes perhaps better than any other director I've ever seen. And as I always think about this, I think that this is the type of movie and the type of things in movies that Chapin always responds to. Yet, surprisingly, he has always been one that is not particularly high on the Spaghetti Western, Good, Bad, and the Ugly in particular. So I challenged him to rewatch this because I was intent on finding out either why that is still the case or to hopefully change his opinion. But I have a couple questions for you, Chapin, before mm-hmm. you just give us your, your, uh, the results. And one is just, in particular, is there something specific that you remember not liking about these movies? Yes. And it can be the Spaghetti Western 
or Good, Bad, and the Ugly specifically? Um, it was just the what I remember as being kind of the sort of silliness um, that I remember of those movies. Uh, that there was kind of this sort of comedic tone running through the whole thing. Um, the length a little bit, just that, just that the the I, I didn't feel like at least what I remember before watching it again. Uh, that the genre was being taken very seriously. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, now, my other question for you will lead us into this movie. But taking story and writing out of the equation, I feel like Jeremy's probably going to just tune out for this part. How would you rank the other aspects of of filmmaking, just the general aspects of filmmaking in terms of importance to you, like, visuals sound music maybe throw acting in there you mean in regards to this movie i think yes but also you can you can think more broadly but in terms of this type of movie like how does that stuff stack up for you when you're watching a movie are are visuals the most important thing like if they're good and assisting in telling the story or is it more important to have music working well is it more important to have good acting like obviously every movie is different but like I said, my, my thoughts and my feelings towards these spaghetti westerns and Good and Bad and the Ugly has always been that those things, the visuals, the sound, the music, are what make this movie. Yeah. No, I would agree with that. So I'm curious, like, how those stack up. Where do those rank for you? And then parlay that into where they stand and how you felt about your your experience watching this. Well, look, I think you have to forgive a certain amount of... Um, you know, old timey dialogue. This is a movie set mm-hmm. during the Civil War. It was made in 1966, I believe. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, there's not going to be that realistic pitter patter that I like. But that being said, I mean, I think the dialogue is quite good. Um, the visuals are 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 very important. Obviously, I think when I look at a western in particular, um, I. really respond to the 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 genre kind of reflecting on the american identity and one of the reasons i was sort of dubious of the spaghetti western is uh, you know obviously that tone that i interpreted as silly but also just that you know perhaps in my naivete how how could a genre how could a a a a subgenre of films that were filmed and made by Italians, um, you know, reflect on the American consciousness. Mm-hmm. And I think the, you know, I didn't think that it, going into it, I didn't think Leon cared that much about those t- type of um, themes. Well, I'd like to hear what you think now, although I would agree that he probably doesn't. Uh, yeah, well, do you think, I, 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 I think it's interesting that, you brought that up, Javen, because the Western is so uniquely American. And yeah. it, it was, even at this point, it's, you know, been 20 years of John Ford previous to this um, that they're sort of taking from. So <clears throat> you, you also got to put a, in a little bit of historical context here yeah. Yeah. That, that they've been making these movies, making Westerns, very American story, um, you know, about conquering lands and people and starting uh starting civilization sort of up in the american west for 20 years so they could then parlay this a little bit 
and utilize the backdrop of Spain with an Italian director. And still, we're, we know, we still have our anchor. Yeah, and Leone grew up on American movies, and I think a lot like Score, and Tarantino, who obviously Leone is a big influence on Tarantino. Weirdly enough, Leone seemed to steal all his music from Tarantino movies, evidently. Well, did you guys ever hear the the uh, when uh, Ennio Morricone won best score? I think it was for uh, maybe The Hateful Eight, but he wasn't there, and, and Tarantino accepted his Oscar. Maybe it was a Golden Globe; it doesn't matter. And and he gets up there and he's just like, "Do you guys all realize Ennio Morricone is my favorite composer? Not movie composer, composer. Yeah. Not Mozart. Yeah. Not not Beethoven. Ennio Morricone is my favorite composer." Um, but no, I, I have to admit, I was to- I was totally wrong. Okay. Yes. This this is a great movie. Um, I get it. I don't know that it's the best western I've ever seen, but I I like this movie so much more than Rio Bravo, which was the last right western I've western seen, but also the last one we reviewed on the podcast. And yeah, I mean, you're totally right. I I, I think he nails the tone. I was wrong. I think this is a reflection on the American identity. I love that all three of these characters are morally ambiguous. We don't really know. I mean, you know, I guess Clinton, Clint Eastwood is the good, but even he's not very good. I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Um, (laughs) He's just selfish. I I love the moral ambiguity that I feel like, you know, there's a lot that a a film, like a, a, a series like Deadwood, which I think kind of, kind of digs into the Western genre in ways that movies just simply can't, uh, has a lot to learn from the, you know, probably was influenced a lot by movies like this because just because these characters are so flawed and selfish and I, they kind of define that era for me. These guys just like roaming the South, um, looking for opportunity and gold and fucking over anybody they can to, to get it. And, um, I mean, I will argue that I, I really, really do not think this movie needed to be 170 minutes long. Um, but I was, but that's fine. It's, I, it didn't bother me too much, but what I will say is this had the same budget almost to a T of Rio Bravo, which came out nine years before this film. And it is so much bigger in scale. Like, I love that. Like, this is, that's what I want. That's what I wanted out of Rio Bravo. Like, there's this, that, when that bridge explodes, like. (laughs) You you want to see the expansiveness of the American West. You want to be able to see the landscape, which, of course, it also helps the choice of lenses uh, in his movies, especially the good and the bad and the ugly, um, where you get to capture the entirety of a whole sort of land. But yeah, Rio Bravo, you could tell it was put together on the back lot somewhere. Yeah. And it didn't yeah. have that. <clears throat> my, um, my and I, 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 I love the, I love the cinematography. I think, um, a lot was made of when I was doing my research, I found that, you know, the, Leone's one of his characteristics is of course, like the wide shot, as we know, like the famous wide shot of the, um, the little, space in between in the middle of the graveyard where they have the mexican standoff um cut in with these close-ups which is sort of sort of rule breaking you know like um even now like working on a project or 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 reading about you know famous cinematographers they usually choose you know kind of long lens a long lens look which we've talked about with like you know Ridley Scott likes those for Blade Runner like that kind of compression of space mm-hmm. or the sort of wider lenses like you see in you know an extreme case movies like The Revenant 
Um, and you kind of have to do either or, um, or right. people generally tend to, but, but he, so he kind of breaks the rules even today, um, in today's standards and, it, but it totally works. And it's, uh, I, I love that. Like I love going from this wide shot where you can barely tell who they are to this like close up where yeah. you're just yeah, above like his eyebrows. Eyes, yeah. yeah. And that it's almost, it's almost that last scene, which is one of my favorite scenes in cinema history. And, but it's almost like a music video. I mean, it helps that this score is one of my favorite scores in cinema history. And yeah, it's great. <laughs> I love, and this is where I'll push back on you on the running time, Chapin, of all of his movies. And I feel like maybe Jeremy will agree with me, is that I don't think that there's anybody better than Leon at, at stretching a scene. And, and, and I'm going to say dragging out a scene, but that makes it sound pejorative. It's, it's what he's he's good at is creating tension from edits. Sure. Tension, exactly. And, and I didn't and mind the in scene lengths at all. That didn't bother me. Like I, what I do recall, you know, having not seen it anywhere near as much as as recently as I have in Good, the Bad, the Ugly. Like my recollection of that opening twenty minutes of um, Once Upon Once a Upon a West. Time in the West uh, is that it was kind of drawn out and long. I didn't find that. I just think like you know you could have cut one or two of the them kind of getting caught and you know yeah i i won't argue with that i mean i think there's there's it probably could have used an edit in that in that regard um and i even think that there's some scenes of exposition that are just unnecessary i mean you hear like three or four times and maybe it maybe it is necessary but and and i admit i didn't i didn't rewatch this entire movie i want i watched probably about half of it um but i had um sweet smell of success to watch and i also rewatched annihilation but um I do think there's some scenes maybe where you get in a little bit extra that you don't need. Um, you know, he, he, he does it, he does it in once upon a time in the West too. He always finds these like quirky, weird, strange actors slash characters that are in his movie and in good, bad and the ugly. He's got this guy that hops forward with no legs that gives, uh, I think Lee Van Cleef a little bit of information that he needs. Um, in once upon a time in the West, Henry Fonda's talking to the guy in the back brace, on the train that he then kills. Like there's always, it's like, he's just some like a friend of a friend that he knew that yeah. needed a handout. And so there's all these certain characters in good, bad, and the ugly that I feel like are there to kind of move the plot forward, which like I said, I like the story actually quite a bit in good, bad, and the ugly, but it's not as important to me. Um, so if you lose some of that, I would have been fine. If that shortened sure. it by 20 minutes, fine. Yeah, so for me, Leone, weirdly enough, is the ultimate silent filmmaker. Mm-hmm. I think he's he's more of a painter in a weird way than a filmmaker. And it reminds me of this Spielberg. I don't remember where he said it or what, but there was a Spielberg quote about how he learned so much from watching movies with the sound off. Right. Because then you, you're, you're paying attention so much to the edit. Well... Leone makes movies with the sound off. Yeah, Nothing right. else famously. seems to matter. It's it, it it's it's like storyboards come to life. Like everything is precise to how the filmmaking <clears throat> needs to be. And then afterwards, which is fun, you can add the sound effects in, you can add the dialogue in, you can add the score in and really put it all together. But he he uh who was it that said was it Walter um Walter Murch? They used to talk about, uh, you know, editing with the camera. Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, Leone does that. He he's very precise about every. It's I I would be surprised to ever find out that he had that he shot way too much film and there's a lot on the cutting room floor. He's very deliberate and I think he can, he gets he edits while he shoots. Can you Jeremy? Can you just detail a little bit more what Leone does that's unique in terms of how he would film his movies for anyone who doesn't know? And why? Uh, oh, the so basically he doesn't record sound. He has actors that speak various languages, um, and then he dubs over the dialogue with either their voice or somebody else's voice afterwards. And he also puts in every sound effect. There's no. Um, yeah, they don't record don't, sound. They don't they record it. sound yeah. at all. So everything's really about what he's putting together in the camera. Which and just seems after, crazy. <laughs> but I think but but it like concentrates you. It and concentrates it looks, you to to what you need to display onto the screen. And you can yeah. see it. Like the the visuals are so stunning in his movies. And and not like look like we've seen a ton of movies that that have amazing visuals. But there is something so unique when you're looking at a Sergio Leone movie, and specifically his westerns, and really specifically this one, and Once Upon a Time in the West, I, I think. Um, fistful of dollars and a few a few dollars more have that, but are a little less grand in it. Um, and there are some elements of it in Once Upon a Time in New York. What is it? What is the American one? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, that's it. Yeah, Once Upon yeah. a Time in New York. There's some elements of that. Um, you know, grand visual <clears throat> look. I don't. I have a feeling he didn't re- film that the same way with no sound. Um, I would guess. Yeah. Yeah. But anyway, uh, that I was made in 1984. Great, a, a great example of what you're talking about is the is the scene when um, Eli Wallach, um, what's his name, Tonto, Toto, Tuco, 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 arrives at the cemetery where there where the gold is buried at a at a grave a grave site that he knows or that he thinks he knows the name of, and you know the way Leone has ma- you know constructed this this um this this graveyard is it's in a circle it's very so unique like you don't really circle, yeah. yeah and so the camera essentially is following in a very long shot and compressing that space following Eli Wallach as he runs desperately in circles trying to find this thing and it's such a it's such an exhilarating shot that you wouldn't think would be you know yeah. it's like he gets there and he's kind of you know drunk on his passion to find this gold and um it's it's such a great couple minutes and man and it's accompanied with that score which is yeah which is like uh, all like romantic at times and epic at times like i just think it's it's so it's such an amazing amazing score and and i could totally understand if you argued that the score is overused in this movie it's I not I wouldn't argue with it, but I like it so much that I will. I would never want to turn it I, off. I think part of that argument may come from its place in American zeitgeist, because yeah. people know it's that score so without famous. ever having seen that movie. That's yeah, true. That's a great point. Um, I will also say that while I don't necessarily think the acting is overly important in Sergio Leone's movies, Eli Wallach is really good in this movie really good which is weird because i think he he's like one of the worst parts of godfather 3 um oh, and that's, that's saying right. a lot <laughs> yeah he's so bad in that like he's put like he plays a dawn oh my god it's just he's so bad 
Um, well, we should move on because we're yes. about a third of the way through. Where, where are we going next? Chapin, you want to... Uh, yeah, so... Um, I, by the way, I watched all three movies. So, wow, oh, good great. for you. Yeah. Um, good work, Chapin. And <laughs> I, I watched Hustlers instead of finishing Good, Bad, and the Ugly. Yeah, good for you. <laughs> um, so, uh, you guys are like really breaking up. I bet it's my internet is pretty slow. Anyways, sorry. Um, so, Jeremy, I, yep. I I wanted you to revisit this, maybe because I feel like I needed to revisit it. This is one of those movies that just, I don't know. I think it missed, uh, having revisited it, I think it missed the mark. Okay, but I do think that this movie... It needs to be seen again. And I think we're talking added, about Annihilation. Annihilation. I think with the added context of Stalker and what you what you missed in Stalker, I, f- I felt like maybe Annihilation on a second viewing for you might be more worthwhile, might shed some light on. I, I, I think that <clears throat> I guess why I wanted us to like put our look at this again is because I think Alex Garland is a filmmaker that I really respect. He's someone I, I really like. I think, Lee, you made a great point on the podcast where you thought, well, maybe he isn't as great as we as we thought he was. <laughs> right. But, you know, ex machina. Wait, how do you say that? Machin? What do you? I think that's right. Machina. Ex machina. Yeah. Ex machina is such a good movie and so smart. And I think there's some yeah. great ideas in Annihilation as well. But um, anyways, and, 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 I, and, I, and so I wanted you to take a look at it again. I don't really have a specific question for you, but I do want to know. Well, you know, I did... Um... So I did rewatch it with the frame of Stalker in mind. I sort of, yeah. That's sort of the way I went at this. Um, because I really didn't remember that much about what I had said on the podcast for Annihilation when I, when I watched this. I have su- since listened to the podcast, and I think, for the most part, um, my thoughts stand up. But... Shit. But... Stalker, the issues I had with Stalker, I still have some of those with Annihilation, and, I, and I'll get to the, the differences too. But one of my issues with Stalker that I talked about, and I think Stalker's a much better movie. I'm going to preface this by saying Stalker, I think, is a much better movie. But one of the issues was the relationship between the characters in Stalker. I had, right. issue, I had issues with lack of depth there. But I also had those issues in Annihilation, and I speak to this pretty lengthy in the podcast but i just i still the problem with annihilation in the the character development is they start to try to do something at least stalker it stays away for from it and it was probably a very purposeful stays away from doing anything (laughs) doing anything as far as bringing the relationship between those characters that go on that journey whereas annihilation starts to delve into the characters just a tiny bit just toe in the water um to to try to establish a relationship and it's so just toe in the water that it becomes it it comes off um a little bit uh one note and you your sympathies are then lost because you don't care about the characters because you just a, a quick, you know, exchange about one who had cancer or one who had a divorce or one who uh, is lonely and blah, blah, blah. It's just not enough for you to really establish anything once these women go into this very dangerous 
uh, area called the Shimmer. Um, so I, I think as far as Stalker and Annihilation is concerned, they both have problems there, but Stalker at least sort of leaves it alone where Annihilation tries to address it, but very, very poorly and makes it worse for having done that. Also, Annihilation, the question that you have going into it is um, an outside question. It's what is the shimmer? What's happening here? We have like a biologist and a scientist and I don't know why, but an EMT. You have all these people that sort of (laughs) relate to the shimmer from their what they do in life and this and that and it's all about what this thing is where stalker is more about the questions they have for themselves it's personal they're trying to discover something by going into whatever this is that they go into but the answers they're looking for are for themselves where stalker we we don't get that there's not really annihilation you mean I mean, Annihilation, yeah, there's not really a deep sort of understanding of oneself that that any of them try to do, even though there's half-ass problems that they all have between Natalie Portman and her relationship with her husband um, and uh, what's her, Jennifer Jason Lee and her cancer. Um, yeah, all those sort of problems aren't on the forefront enough that you're even thinking that this movie's going to try to resolve them. And then you get to the end of Annihilation, and there's no resolution for them. There's no resolution for you as an audience member. And it kind of... It just leaves you saying, what the fuck? Why? And I... I, I, that's, That's where I separate those two movies. The thing about Annihilation, Jeremy, is you really need to watch it three times. Yeah. Okay. We're just going to so run it again. Play. I um I I was am- you know what I was I was amazed about this watching Annihilation cuz this is something very very rare and it's especially rare with some with a movie that you would define as thought provoking whether you liked it or not. I had almost an identical experience and feeling about Annihilation the second time around where I was intrigued by the things that Alex Garland was trying to say but failed to say because he had a terrible script and horrible acting. Yeah. I, and I just like I just felt the same way. There was parts of this movie that I was like, this is entertaining enough. That scene was done well. This is okay. Alex Garland clearly has some things to say. He's clearly creative. He's clearly has as a smart writer and director, but he didn't put all of his skills to good use in this movie. And as a result, you're left with all of the things that Jeremy just said. Look, uh, an I, I, unsatisfactory I went in, experience. I, I didn't go into this movie angry. I didn't go into this movie hoping I hated it. Um, and I went in trying to find those little, you know, rays of talent that I know he has as a director. And then also to Chapin's point on the podcast, he is an important director, and we do want to support movies like this. <clears throat> so I wasn't looking to tear this movie apart having 
going into it the second time. And like I said, Stalker was the thing that was sort of forefront on my mind. But all those little pieces, the what is that over and over again, the the not believing stuff. I mean, you're literally going into an alien world where since the moment you walk in, nothing makes sense. Why why are all these characters still in denial? What, what, what point did that serve? Um, it just seemed... It just seemed like they they were dumb or that they didn't have that poor, thing that they... It's, it's a bad script. It's poorly written exposition. I mean, the, I, I wrote, the script is horrible, I, and I don't think I was that harsh on it the first time around. I actually think it is a... You, you said in the podcast, Jeremy, that it's the first draft of a script that needed 10 more drafts. Right. And that's totally right. It's a terrible script. The, the exposition is poorly done. The character development is poorly done. And... To add on top of that, you have bad acting throughout. I think uh, I think with Natalie the Portman actually co- was pretty good. Yeah, with the exception of a couple people, I think Natalie Portman's fine. I think uh, Jennifer Jason Lee is fine. I think Oscar Isaacs is fine. Uh, but the uh, the other three lead actresses are all pretty bad. Um, Tessa Thompson, I don't really understand the industry's Appeal. fascination with her yeah uh, i don't think she's particularly good uh jane the virgin whatever her real name is sorry <laughs> i don't think she's very good in the movie um and uh the other actress I, I as as unprepared as i am i don't have any other names in front of me um i thought they were all really bad and, and they were responsible for a lot of the exposition because they were telling natalie portman what they're going to do what who everybody else is they were introducing us as audience members to the rest of the crew as they were talking to Natalie Portman. So they were responsible for delivering a lot of the lines of dialogue that were on a bad script. But good actors can pull that off sometimes. So, I mean, there's some blame to go around, but I think that's the problem. There, There uh, well, is an idea yeah. here. There is a director that has ideas, both as a, uh, both a writer and a director that has ideas, but it it's a movie that does not execute them well. And I also found this time the music to be off-putting. Oh, interesting. I actually really liked the score this time. Yeah, I like the, mu- I, I like the music. I, I didn't dislike it as like if it was separated from the movie. Sure, yeah. Uh, but I just felt it didn't, it, it didn't go with the story that was being told. It felt very sort of inside Lewin Davis while we were watching a Fairly weird well. sci-fi. Um, so, but Chapin, why did, so what did you get out of trying to see this again? Were you... I think I trying think to I got convince the same. yourself of something. Well, you know, so okay, I like I expressed, I, I found I found it hard. I found Stalker frustrating because I found it very stimulating, thought provoking in a way. But I, you know, I I hate leaving movies feeling like I missed something and not knowing right. what I'm meant to hear. And look, I I understand. You know, we, we talk about this over and over again, but, you know, movies are meant to ask questions. They're not necessarily meant to answer questions. And, and and they're not supposed to tell you something. They're supposed to provoke you to think about something. But, okay. It's I still also want, not that black and white, though. It's not. No, it's not. And I and I want to know the, you know, the intention of the filmmakers. And and, and really, with, the, with, with Annihilation, I wanted to know, you know, what what this thing was, what this thing was doing. And, and ultimately, you know, what are we meant to take away from it? And I don't know mm-hmm. that, you know, watching it again, I don't know that I got any closer to that. I think it had that ending that now seems quite uh, sort of typical where you see a little glow in the actor's eyes and, you know, yeah. 
you, you know something's different. Okay, the, great. The, what are we the supposed spinning to take away top. Let us let us yeah. think about it forever. Yeah. Are you are you telling us that this is now someone different? Like what? Like what? Um, and I and think, why couldn't they have just bombed the lighthouse if all it took was one grenade? Well, who knows? Who knows even <laughs> if that worked? But so yeah, exactly. And like, what does that mean? Is that actually what happened? Um, and like. I've listened to Alex Garland. There's these weird, <laughs> there's these a couple people who I kind of like love listening to them talk, but they also like verge on the, the they sort of are on the verge of becoming quite obnoxious to me at the same time. And Alex Garland is one of those people. Carlo and Jeremy Fisk. <laughs> uh, yeah, and, and and just because he, I I, I find his confidence like kind of. Um, enticing and attractive and the way he talks like so intelligently and confidently about his work is really interesting to me but it's also like I, I don't know that you've earned yeah what work yeah yeah I don't know that you've earned like you've made one decent project as a director I, I don't know that you've anyway and, and and I'm I'm curious to watch it he has a new show on Hulu called devs which I've heard a lot of great things about but I guess my point is that I just think that um I just think that he he clearly had something here. I, I think it was ultimately a failure. Um, but I think like a lot of great filmmakers, and maybe this is something that can be said about them and, and their, their, their failures are a lot more interesting than you know your run-of-the-mill movie. Does that make sense? And I think there's a well, lot to think about with Annihilation, but I, I think ultimately it's an unsuccessful film. Um, but it's still an interesting watch because you're sitting there doing that thing where you're guessing what's he trying to say what's going on here you know like there's that multiple level of what's happening this is in within the set the story there's a mystery what's the shimmer what's happening you don't really get a clear sense of what that is but then also to expand on that going back to stalker what is the filmmaker trying to say and i think that that thought process just automatically elevates a movie even if it be, even if it ultimately is unsuccessful and something else that frustrates me about about annihilation is is both times that I've watched this movie I've gone and and you know done the Google search what does annihilation mean what is annihilation about yeah and there's a there's a lot there that tells you and I mean I guess people gather this from the book or something because I I scoff at the idea that somebody is watching this movie and and like get and having a full explanation of everything but the idea that supposedly is being portrayed here is that is this question of what if the world got cancer and the shimmer is essentially that and the movie is supposed to outline how cancer impacts everybody differently some people accept it like tessa thompson just kind of goes off and accepts it other people fight back against it like natalie portman um it can impact you your body in different ways and so fine but (laughs) if that's it but uh, multiple issues i have with that are one we've always talked about if you got to go and read it then it's then your movie didn't succeed but even more so that makes this movie very much not layered actually it actually makes it really kind of simple even though it's convoluted it's almost too simple. Like, if you're, why are you hiding your theme so much if that's all it is? 
like let us understand that and actually i think maybe that's a good movie but by hiding it all and then it turning out to be just that it's actually makes it oddly boring to me does that make sense it makes it a boring discovery when yeah, I when I, I go and I, look and say, "Oh, that's all it was." Why couldn't he just say that? Like, I'm I'm bored by that idea. Like, because this movie is, like, we keep saying, like, Alex Garland clearly has ideas. Like, he, he clearly is creative. He's smart. But then that's it. That's not interesting. Like, I I just I I want more from this thought provoking movie than just oh, it's just cancer. And, and cancer yeah. impacts everybody differently. Like, well, that's and, just not interesting. Know, we and we don't know that and, that's the case, though. Like, yeah. I mean, that's... like No, I, it could be more than that, and that's just something that, that I read. that could be the but, book, I think. The sure. book apparently is, is better than the movie and gives a lot more information, so... But can I ask we're you We're just guys, talking about the let movie. Let me ask you, Jeremy, because you're the one yep. who watched it, and but Lee, you should weigh in, too. But, like, what, do you guys think it is... Do you guys think, as a director, it's important that people... Leave your movie, and maybe it's not even the first time they leave it, but they eventually understand what you were getting at. Do you think that's important? Um, no, not necessarily. I don't know. I I think to an extent, I don't think they have to grasp it a hundred percent the way that you intended, but I think they have to at least have some sort of ringing of it in their head, I, I whether they, they know it or not, because that's you're trying to. To get that across. I think so that it, they need to have their own interpretation. I think you need to be able to have an interpretation, even if it's not the right one. And I think that's something that Stalker may have that Annihilation doesn't. I mean, we all have no interpretation of what Annihilation is trying to say outside of what we may have read after watching it. Yeah. And I that's mean, the problem. Where a movie like Stalker or a movie like Mulholland Drive or something like that, like you can interpret what's happening by watching it, even if it's not exactly what David Lynch or Tarkovsky was trying to say. But is it, I guess, do you undergo the same sort of satisfaction as a viewer? You, I mean, no, that's, it's a that's different viewer to yeah. viewer. That's totally... No, I understand that. But, it, but I mean, Alex Garland went in with this film with a set of ideas as every director does and made a movie and he made it in a way much like Tarkovsky did knowing that people would interpret a lot of his stuff, but also that a lot of people would leave not knowing what he meant to say. Now you look at a movie like sweet smell of success, which we're going to talk about next. That's a movie with ideas as well, but there, there's no confusion as to what that movie is about. Right. And well, I don't, can, and I mean, I don't, and, and same with Good, the Bad, the Ugly. Like, I mean, there's some subtlety there. Like, uh, you kind of get the sense that Leone has an interest in showing you the sort of <laughs> the shitty side of the um, Union Army, for example. That's sort of <laughs> controversial, I guess. But um, do you know what I mean? Like, I. I just like as a as on a personal level, like I, I understand it. I know that you know, I've talked to you guys before about putting things into the, the last movie I made that I thought were really misinterpreted by people, almost in an offensive way, on my part, being if I offended somebody, which I didn't never would want to do. But um, also, I find it frustrating as a viewer too. I don't want I want to know what a filmmaker's trying to say, and I think. Ultimately, for me to have a satisfying experience, I do. I eventually understand it. 
Do you yeah, need I think that's to, true. Do you need to get there 100%, Chapin, though, to to their level, to the director's thought process? No, I, I, I don't think I, I, don't I, don't, think I ever do. I don't, I don't think anyone does, and you yeah. can still have a satisfying experience. And that's what I mean. I think you need to have an interpretation, whether it's the first or second or fifth time you see it or whatever. I think you need to you need to have some sort of internal resolution about what you just saw and, and some sort of takeaway. You need to be able to... Uh, sort of resolve your thoughts in a thought-provoking movie. And I think Can Annihilation I... is missing that for us, and I think that's what's really frustrating us because we see some pieces in place that aren't being fully executed and allowing us to have the full enjoyment of the movie. I do it to give this movie the credit where I think it does deserve some, and I think it's where we sort of grasp onto saying Alex Garland's a, a good director and why we want, you know, to give this movie another shot is I think visually it transports you into another world. Well, you nominated as, it for a fixie. As, as, almost as good as a movie can. Like, hmm. it's up there. That shimmer, everything in the shimmer is pretty visually stunning. Yeah, it's true. Yeah, I was. I thought it was funny that that you have been, or you sort of known to be the most down on this movie, and Chapin challenged you to rewatch it, and you were the one that the only one that gave it a fixie nomination in so take for that. 2018. What cinematography? Yeah. Yep. Brilliant. See, ahead of my time. Is that what that is? is that what that means? <laughs> <laughs> All right. So let's move on to Sweet Smell of Success. So when we first started talking about doing this, I wanted to challenge you, Lee, to a movie that you hadn't seen. I thought that was mostly the idea of this. Um, and this is a movie that weirdly simultaneously I don't remember that much about, but also thought a lot about in the years since I've seen it originally. There's certain aspects of it that really have stuck with me. Um, and this gave me an excuse to rewatch it, also to hear your guys' opinion on it. Um, so that being said, Lee, what, if anything, did you know about this movie going into it? Uh, nothing. Literally nothing. nothing. Literally Great. nothing. Although That's I will fun. say, I'd heard of it, of course, and I was sort of welcoming the challenge to watch this because I feel like there's an era of movies, and I don't know what the exact era is, but I want to say, like, let's, let's just say, like, 1940 to, like, 1965. So we're not quite into the 70s. And this was era. in 1957, was just 1957, so people know. So like right in the middle of that. So not quite into the um, into the 70s era, which of course produced uh, maybe the most great films in any era. But um, but post early black and white, early like so you kind of have this like these polished looking movies. You know, Billy Wilder, um, maybe some late Hitchcock, The Rear Windows of the World, things like that. And it's it, it's an era of of film that I've always really enjoyed the movies I've seen from, but there's so many that I haven't seen. And part mm -hmm. of that is because the catalog is so big. When I say, okay, I'm in the mood to watch one of these movies. What do I pick? I don't have an op. Like, I don't know what to pick. I don't know where to start. So I, I sort of welcome the challenge. I was like, okay, sweet smell of success. This is a movie that's in that canon that, you know, is critically acclaimed stars, some big actors from that time period. I'd love to watch this. If, I feel like this is something I'll really enjoy. So and that was and it. That was it. I knew nothing about it other than that. And for me, what I remember and what stuck out to me were were a couple things. And one, the 
the biggest one being the dialogue, um, and the second being the relationship between uh, Tony Curtis and Burt Lancaster. The rest of the plot, I had I, I hadn't remembered at all. So I sort of had to rediscover it. And it turns out there's a reason I didn't remember it. But we can get to that. My other question for you is, what what, what genre is this? Where would you label this? So I don't know what genre it is. It's a good question. I did draw two comparisons, though. Um, and I think they're a little bit odd. But I think you guys okay. will understand them. Um one, this isn't the first one I, I drew to, but it was one that I thought of, and it was a movie we talked about recently, is Scarface. Um, well, I, I can see the comparison with this the is like sister a, relationship. Well, there's that for sure. but And I think that's maybe what like drew that in, up in my memory. But it's it's like it's sort of like the Scarface for the publishing world. You know, it's just like this, especially, you know, thinking of Tony Curtis as the Tony Montana character, I guess you know, kind of doing whatever is necessary to get what he wants. Um, but that was a less apt comparison than I think Uncut Gems is. Um, That's a great comparison. I, I, I think like this that. is this is very similar to Uncut Gems, and Tony Curtis is very much a Howard Ratner or vice versa. Um, and the style of this movie, the constant motion that this movie is in, both the character and the way it's filmed, I think are very similar to a lot of the things you see in Uncut Gems. So. What it's genre New York. is un- yeah? And New- what genre is uncut gems? Thriller? I don't. I don't. Yeah. No I would drama. Call I, that more of a thriller. I don't think this is. But yeah, it's a good question in terms of genre. But those were my comparisons. Yeah, I like that uh, with uncut gems because the, the uncut gems and this movie are, like throw you into a time and a place and just a sense of time and world that these those two guys work in mm-hmm. and they're both unscrupulous characters that do whatever they can to sort of get ahead in a t- small time frame um i think that's great yeah and, and they they're just, fun to watch them do that and he and, and tony curtis he kind of like uses everybody he knows and all his skills to like complete this totally convoluted strange plot that he has yeah. put together and that's exactly what happens in uncut gems like you never know what his plan is but you can see that he's got a plan and you're trying to follow along with it and parts of that lended to a couple issues i had with this movie but i liked that about tony curtis and and a lot of credit goes to him and his performance for that um but that yeah that was I, I thought an interesting and kind of fun comparison to draw on as I was watching this movie. I, I did write down a sort of a poor man Citizen Kane too. Hmm. Um, with Bert, with Burt Lancaster's being sort of the Kane of it. Yes, I think so. I mean, he's like sort of a is uh, is influential as they you know suggest that he is in this movie. He sort of a, almost feels small time. Like he's he's not a mogul. You know what I mean? He's just a influential columnist. I guess. Um, but here's here's I, there's a lot of things I liked about this movie, but here was my issue. And you mentioned the dialogue, Jeremy, yeah. which, you know, I it it was so much of like uh Fred McMurray and Barbara Stanwyck in Double Indemnity. I, I think yeah. it helps that Burt Lancaster sounds like Fred McMurray, but there was a lot of that metaphorical dialogue which is interesting and it was it's always always a creative way to kind of say things 
during this era I, of film. See, I, I, I thought it. I but, think it's fun. I think it's fun to listen to. Yeah, it is. But I also think it lended to this movie the, being a little confusing in the sense that just just trying to figure out why the characters are doing things, some of their motivations. It was a hundred percent. You caught up with the what their plan was, what they were trying to do. You caught up. That's fine. I don't know how interesting it was, but I think the motivation. I don't, what of, were they doing of, it for? I think the motivation power, of Burt Lancaster yeah. not wanting his sister to be with that guy isn't a strong enough motivation no, for agree. this movie to sort of hinge Completely this whole right plot. On, yeah. This whole plot on it's it's bizarre. He has a picture of her in, on his desk. It's so weird. Incestual. <laughs> um, so you either got to go all sort of more all in with that incestual side plot or via or Scarface just, like yeah. yeah or just sort of have a different plot where Tony Curtis has to get something sort of accomplished well here's what was what was strange is i don't know why i drew this conclusion but early in the movie i was under very early in the movie i was under the impression that Susie was Burt Lancaster's daughter hmm. not not his sister which I feel like that would work better. That would have worked, right? Like you're yeah. just being over an overly protective parent. Yeah. But then you make it the brother and now you have this like odd incestuous element to it which is distracting even you know even if it's not supposed to be that important. But it does become important and it it is also there's this movie sort of crunched in its timeline, so a lot happens in a little bit of time. So it seems like the motivations for these characters don't right. line up and, quite. And, a- and what's weird about that, too, that I struggled with is it doesn't take place over a long period of time. And like four or five articles are published in that amount of time. Yeah. And like newspapers are printed. So, so, so that part of the movie, I agree with you. And I had totally forgotten about it. And I don't think it's very that part's very good, but I really enjoyed watching Tony Curtis's character try to navigate this publishing scene, which is so bizarre and different, and of course it's of a different era, but to see how important it was and his job back then, and to just put you in these nightclubs in New York and on the streets of New York in the late 50s, and to see how he manipulated people and conned people and sort of did all this to get what he needed, it was, that's that's yeah. the fun of this movie. So the the one of my, my favorite scenes, if not my favorite scene, is when he he pretends to call J.J. Hunsecker, yes. Art Lancaster, yeah. to try to to convince uh, this because he saw the thriving before. comic that that he can represent him. It's such a I would have lo- I wish that was the movie, like this this how this press agent gets work and how he operates instead of I think that was most plot. of the movie and I think the relationship between Burt Lancaster and Tony Curtis because Burt Lancaster you, you may not say is Kane but he is very powerful and people senators and yeah. everybody's afraid of him um, well look so, I, I thought Tony Curtis was so good in this movie I also thought that Burt Lancaster was really good in this movie and they both play pretty unlikable characters yes and you're supposed to not like Burt Lancaster through those, through most of this movie, but Curtis is is challenged with the added pressure of being your main protagonist, being the person that you like, being the person that you follow, being kind of the person you want to win. 
and he's not likable. And that's a challenge for any actor. And I, and I think he pulled it off amazingly. And that's why, like you said, that's what's fun to watch about this movie. But because I, I just struggled because this is the first time I'd seen it. I didn't have any recollection of enjoying that aspect, so I couldn't cling to that. I, I was spending so much time trying to understand the motivations of the characters, trying to understand why they were doing what they were doing and what, what their next you know pl- part of their plan was. And really just struggling with the plot, I guess. I, I lost out maybe on on the more positive aspects of this movie, unfortunately. Yeah, and I also said Martin Milner, who plays the boyfriend, was pretty terrible too. Oh, you think the, so? I thought he was yeah, good. Yeah, the one redeeming the one redeeming sort of character, I think he did, just didn't have I thought he was good. have the chops to go up against Lancaster, I mean he had he did have sort of a Hayes code shucks. Hayes code responsibility to say mm-hmm. like, you know, the <laughs> things that are happening in this movie aren't aren't condoned well they um, talk about that they talk about the the not the Hays code in particular but the like uh uh, you know saying somebody's a communist in an an article and they they bring that up um so yeah chapin you were able to watch it i was i really liked it um i especially liked the uh Cinematography by James Wong yes. Howe, who's a Chinese American cinematographer, which is I feel like pretty rare back then. But I love that they shot it on location. It was so cool to see, you know, so totally. many of these movies. Yeah. I just watched um, All About Eve, which is centered around the same time period about, and she's on Broadway. And I think a lot of that is on the back lot, and they do a lot, and there's probably a lot of rear projection. But like this movie did a great job about like sticking a camera out on in Times Square. Well, in um, the ex, in the extras in this movie was yeah. really impressive. Like that was a lot of that that I noticed. That, I love like, that. In these um, in these clubs, there was like constant background dialogue, and like it was really impressive. There was, and I, I you know, I, I, I failed to mention it in the last couple of podcasts, but you know, Good, the Bad, the Ugly, Stalker. Um, There's another movie I watched recently, but I'm not remembering quite what it was. That was older. I'm just amazed how they're able to move the camera. Like they, I mean, the, you know. For those who don't know, a camera of the 1950s is the size of a table. It's huge. (laughs) Um, And there's this really dynamic shot where they're sitting at the table uh, with the senator. And, you know, uh, uh, Burt Lancaster's character is basically saying, accusing the agent of being a pimp, essentially, for for the senator, right? Like, that's what he was for that woman, the actress who was sitting there. Wasn't that what he was saying? Like, Lancaster wasn't. Uh, Tony Curtis was accusing him, wasn't he? Well, I thought Lancaster was as well. Maybe not. I can't remember. I and know the scene you're talking it, about. But. It, the camera's sort of like mo- tracking left, but then it pans right. Really sort quick, of, yeah. R- as he's talking. The the camera just like pans really quickly from the agent to the actress. Um, and it's just such a dynamic shot. And there's a couple more of those where, man, like I just I love like motivated camera moves. Um so nice and what was like why did that look feel so sort of rich and there was a richness to yeah, that look I think it the, was i don't know what the focus was or how it well, how they the, pulled that off that dp is known for popularizing deep focus even before um citizen kane uh and there's also just kind of a, a the you know very sort of high you know high key lighting there's a lot of contrast which is even more amazing on location. Yeah. Right. 
Um, we can't talk about this movie without talking about how sexist it is. Very and like sexist. how there is one of the most blatantly offensive scenes I may have ever seen. Uh, Which one? So it's when Sydney forces this woman to have sex oh, with yeah, another yeah. columnist and she is like openly breaking down and saying she doesn't want to do it. So he coerces her even more so well, to do I mean, it. That, and is then that leaves. sexist? It's obviously wrong, and that's the whole point. It's it's not you know that yeah, that but I don't goes know how to much... show what his character is. Like I mean, it's it's not supposed to look good for him. But I I that's true. But I also think it was a sign of the times where that was okay. So maybe maybe it's not sexist in kind of a weird way. Um, it's actually progressive to <laughs> point this type of thing out um but there's also scenes in this movie where he tells Susie that she thinks with her hips not with her head but that's okay because that's what men are here so she can keep why men are here so she can keep thinking with her hips yeah um, that one that one that one you can't excuse yeah so i mean there's a lot in this movie that i was like oh this is this is not okay right but he is supposed to be a slime ball like that's his character. he is so you're right so maybe maybe that is is bad, but and and maybe that makes that scene better. Like I said, and which is kind of fucked up, but like you're you're cringing. Like she is, she is like breaking down. She's crying. She's saying she's not yeah. that kind of girl. She doesn't want to do this. And then he says, "Think about your." He literally, are after already dragging her there and duping her into this situation of having sex with a columnist so that he can get something printed. He then doubles down, and and tell and basically threatens her. In a sort of like he can't do anything, but he he says that if you do this, like certain things will work out for you. See, I really thought of that as sort of progressive in a weird way, is like showing him as the slime ball um, that he really is. Yeah, you might be right. I was offended, so maybe that works in that sense. Um, r- real quick note: one of the uh, authors, Clifford Odets, speaking of the. Um, uh, Hayes Code and the communist uh, stuff. He apparently was um, was part of the American Communist Party, and then they disavowed it. And then he named names of fellow communists. Oh, so he, what was he blacklisted? I mean, no, he uh, he was not himself blacklisted because he named names. Oh, that's right. So he gotcha, gotcha. That's so. interesting. Um. Yeah. I mean, last question about it. Overall, you guys glad that you watched it? Definitely. I I was wondering. I have a quick question before we wrap this up. Is yeah. anybody making movies like this anymore? In which way? I don't know. I mean, we don't even know what genre it's in. But uh, I don't know. Like movies that are dialogue heavy and character driven, and I don't know. I mean, I yes, feel, they're just who, who, they're who, rare. Like, I, mean, I think that, Uncut Gems is a great example. Yeah. Those are some of the things that we admire about Tarantino and PTA. Um, I, I, I don't think their movies are, are all that similar to this. Um, but, you know, I do think that those are the types of movies that we have been talking a lot about missing. You know, it's, yeah. It's, yeah. it's hard to get that type of movie made. You know, it, even just forgetting about the, you know, idea of make making a movie that's not based on an existing IP, you know, it's, 
these types of movies, I don't. Th- they just don't draw the crowd. I mean, PT is a perfect example. They don't draw an audience, so they're just not financed, and good directors aren't making them. Yeah, I mean, movies like where you get thrown into a world and a occupation that you know nothing about, but you get to sort of live it for a bit. I, I think, I think those type of films are still made, but. Yeah, they're difficult to they're they're you know few and far between. Yeah, I mean, I I, I liked this movie. I didn't love it. Um, I, in a sense, I was a little disappointed in it. I was really looking forward to it. Um, but that makes it sound worse who's, than it was. Whose chair is that? Oh, that's mine. Sorry, it's hard to. It's, it's wooden. <laughs> it's, it's Jeremy has a wooden chair, Chapin. Yeah. Wow up there in vermont um all right guys i think that's gonna wrap it up that does it for our our challenge episode our rewatch challenge episode uh are we ready next week to do the nolan retrospective the nolan retrospective (laughs) you gotta do it you gotta Uh, be able to do the joker too well i'm i'm working on it (laughs) (laughs) uh yeah i should be able to um i thought kirk my insights were bad (laughs) (laughs) nice uh all right so something we'd like to ask everybody to do is send in voice recordings with your thoughts on nolan movies we would love to be able to play them throughout the podcast that would be fantastic so Email them to feedback at getyourfilmfixpodcast.com. Hey, let us know your favorites. Allowed... Let us know what you like about Nolan, what you don't like. Oh, yeah. What if we allowed one of our very VIP listeners to do another one? Oh, my God. That, that chair. That chair's got to go. I can't even see you, Jeremy. Just but I throw can just, it out. I just keep hearing it. God damn it. Just, oh, I wasn't doing that. Creak, creak, creak. Fuck. So. It's great, uh, great podcast. I wonder um, if if we uh, if we were to allow a listener to, to do this same thing for us in another episode, just they can sit there and assign each of us a movie to go watch or rewatch. Yeah, I think that's yeah. great. Yeah, I mean, I think we're always encouraging people to email exactly that. <laughs> yeah, so you can assign us. So if you're if you're one of our VIP listeners, which in this case, it's just it's a listener. all of you. Yeah. yeah if, you, if, you, if you email in, you're VIP, baby. Yeah. Yeah, that's to be the, the heading of your email, VIP listener. Yeah. VIP listener. Great. Yeah. Um, all right. So next week, the much anticipated, at this point, more anticipated than Tenant, since this episode, the, the Nolan episode will actually come out. Right. Right. That's true. <laughs> so, uh, Christopher Nolan retrospective, part of the director series, following up on our Quentin Tarantino, David Fincher, and Paul Thomas Anderson episodes, which everybody can go back and listen to on Spotify, iTunes, wherever you get your podcasts. Check us out on Instagram, Facebook. Nobody does Facebook. Um, rate us, rate us, and review us. That would be fantastic. We haven't asked people to do that in a long time, which is probably why nobody has. Yeah. And that's it. <laughs> I'm staying. I'm finishing my coffee.
enjoying my coffee. <laughs>